Matthew chapter 18 can be found on page 823 in the Black Bibles and the seats around you. We're close to two years now from when we first started opening up and studying Matthew as a church together, and we returned to that after a little break in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. As you're getting yourself turned there and settled, uh, by way of introduction to this message, one of the questions that is often debated and discussed in almost every sphere of life is, who is the greatest? And that's the topic of the text that we're about to look into in just a second. So think about the different spheres of life. It might be um, music or education. Uh, It might be art. Uh, I'm really familiar with sports, so I was trying to think this week in terms of sports. I played basketball throughout high school and college, and I follow sports pretty regularly, probably sometimes too much. And um, when you follow, like, let's say basketball, just imagine how much money and time is spent on this one singular question. Who's the greatest basketball player that's ever played? Now, some of you, you're like, I have no idea how much time or money is spent on this, but it's a lot. Like, I'm just thinking about the television and radio programs that spend countless minutes and hours of billable dollars and work hours in the day. So human beings made in the image of God are using their time, money, resources, energy to try and figure out who's the greatest basketball player that's ever played. Is it Michael Jordan? And all of the Chicago fans around this area say, well, of course. But then there's a great case to be made for Wilt Chamberlain, who if he would have learned to shoot the basketball underhand repeatedly and wasn't afraid of being embarrassed for shooting an underhand, he would have had the best statistics ever. And then there's good arguments to be made for the current best player, LeBron James, and et cetera, et cetera. The conversations go on and on and on And on, and they probably will. And then there's football, who's the greatest quarterback to ever played? Is it the number of championships or is it statistics? How do you define greatness in sports? And that's just one realm. I would imagine that regardless of where you come from, maybe you don't relate to the sports question, but you might be wondering who's the greatest author, educator, the greatest musician. And again, in each sphere of life, we ask these questions because we're obsessed and consumed with greatness. This is not a modern problem. This is a human problem. And it is a problem. We're consumed with greatness, and we're looking at it in all of the wrong places. And so we come to God's Word to see that even Jesus' disciples struggled with this question. They struggle with this question here in our text, we're going to see, And if you were paying attention earlier in the service, Danielle read for us Luke chapter 22. They're still asking the question about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven at the time of the Lord's Supper. Jesus just washed their feet. They had a meal together. He just talked about how somebody's going to betray them, and they're still talking about, hey, I wonder who's the greatest. This is the obsession with greatness, and it is here in our text. Let's read it. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be greater for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The outline behind you is going to summarize the focus of the message today. Greatness defined, greatness displayed, greatness defined and displayed. The big idea should not be hard to figure out, especially if you've been around our church. Greatness defined and displayed is found in none other than Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom. That's one big idea. Another way to describe the big idea is not just, okay, so Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But our understanding of greatness needs to be understood in light of the definition given here, then how it's displayed in our lives, and then how that's ultimately displayed in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, the gospel. So let's take these one at a time. Let's first look at the greatness defined. And what we have here in verse 1 of chapter 18 is, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's two clues here that this passage shouldn't be thought of as like a clear break from what's gone before it. Matthew, I don't think, suspects or uh, hopes or anticipates that the readers of the book that we now have, Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, that we would take little chunks of it, study it, then like take a break from it, and then seven, eight weeks later come back and then dive right in. He would kind of expect that we'd just be reading along. And so there's little narrative clues that he's referring to what just happened. So first, look at the first phrase, at that time. At what time? Well, what just happened prior to that? And what happened prior to that was a little interaction about taxes, and Peter steps up and speaks on behalf of the disciples. Jesus talks about how they could pay taxes out of the fish's mouth, but the main point of the story is, listen, we're going to lay down our rights as kings, as sons of the king, and pay these taxes just so that it doesn't get in the way or be a stumbling block to these people here, which very nicely transitions into this text. So first thing you need to realize is at that time, very much is pointing you back to that last story that Nate Prater preached on, oh, a good eight 
weeks ago. The other clue here is it says, uh, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, and then there's a word not in here, but it's, so then who is the greatest? So when you see the word who is the greatest, there's actually a so in the text, and the so is like, so we've been around recently, and there's been some interesting conversations and things going on. Uh, we're kind of wondering, is Peter the greatest? That's, that's Phil's kind of quick translation of what this question is. Because Peter has been in the light, the spotlight of the disciples for the last few chapters. He has been singled out in chapter 10, verse 2. He was declared as the one to whom Jesus would be building his church after he said that Jesus was the Messiah in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Uh, Peter and his two closest friends, James and John, went up with Jesus up on a mountain and had this amazing encounter with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. So you start tracking with Matthew's gospel and you start noticing that Peter keeps getting pushed out into front and center amongst the disciples. So I think that's why there's this question, so wait, Who's the greatest? Because Peter keeps speaking up on our behalf, and Jesus keeps highlighting him, and he's getting special privileges that other people are not. And so I think that's why the question comes. Now let's look at how Jesus responds to the question. That's in verse 2. And calling to him a child. The word for child here is probably no older than the age of seven. So we're thinking young child. Seven or younger is the way this word is often used at that time. So he calls a child, and the word child here is what you would say neuter. Not masculine or feminine. It's not saying it's a boy child or a girl child. So when your text says, and he put him, it may not have been a boy child. It could have been a little girl or a little boy. It's not clear. So calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them, and then he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's take that first part of this, verses 2 and 3. Jesus takes a child, puts the child in the midst of them, and says, you must turn and become like children or you won't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think the point he's trying to get at is, in light of your question about who's the greatest, that if you misunderstand how to define greatness, and you start living your life on a trajectory of what greatness looks like as a disciple, as a church member, as a follower of Jesus, and you have the wrong trajectory of what great disciples look like in his kingdom, you probably aren't even in the kingdom. If you're not on the right trajectory of what greatness is defined and look like, well, then how did you become a part of the kingdom in the first place? And so he defines greatness as simply being childlike. That's really the short phrase to answer the question. How is greatness defined? It's childlike. That's greatness. But that begs a further question, doesn't it? What does it mean to be childlike? What does it mean for you and I when we think of being childlike? And possibly, we think too highly of children in our day compared to their day. Not that we think too highly of them 
in regards to our own estimation of them. But in comparison to them, when you think of what childlike is, you might think of very positive things. You might be thinking of like childlike innocence, sweetness. Oh, children are so sweet. Sweet and innocent. All the parents in the room are like, hmm, I don't know. In fact, I was reading this week and somebody was making this point about how early church fathers, so uh, single men who uh, weren't married and they had kind of given themselves to being pastors and teachers and that there's literature in the early centuries of the Christian church where they would teach this passage and they would talk about kind of like how innocent and, you know, perfect little kids are. And then, you know, the commentators be like, well, that's because these guys never had kids <laughs> uh, or probably didn't spend enough time around kids. So here, here's just a couple things to keep in mind when we think about what does it mean to be childlike, knowing what Jesus is saying in his context and in his day. First, children were probably one of the lowest of status in society, especially this age of children. They had no rights. They had no sense of upward mobility or something that you could offer society. They were not seen as being esteemed. Second thing you need to understand about children extremely vulnerable. Six out of ten kids would not make it past age seven. One of the reasons that commentators suspect that such a low view of children was shared amongst the average ordinary person was because parents, by default, would not want to get too close to or esteem children because it would be heartbreaking how many of them would die. And because of this high mortality rate, it would be common to just think very little and low and like, well, once you get old enough and you've made it and you've kind of survived, well, then maybe we'll give you some time and attention. But otherwise, it's like, yeah, we'll see. And so in that idea and context, we need to think about the lack of rights, the extreme vulnerability, and the utter dependence as three, I think, safe childlike qualities that we should realize. Now, each of these three things have really nothing to do with the character of the child. I'm not talking about their innocence or some sort of aspect in their heart, because it seems to me the best way to understand what it means to be childlike is to understand their position, their position and status in society. Jesus is taking one of the lowest of society placing it right into the middle of them and saying, this is greatness. Translation, it's not so much that children in and of themselves are great, but in God's economy, in God's kingdom, the lowest and the worthless things to the rest of the world are the most prized and possessed things, greatest possessions in God's kingdom. So what's great? Great is the lowly. What should be exalted? Well, the humbled. And so let's move on to that next text because that's in fact what Jesus says in verse 4. So whoever then humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I like the way that um, R.T. France explains that in his translation of this phrase, humbles himself like this child oftentimes makes us think too much of mental attitude when you hear the word humility. And so he has redefined it as make oneself low 
Because again, this is about position and status in society. So don't think of it just as, well, I need a humble spirit. I mean, I think that's assumed to some degree. But think more of, I'm going to put myself in a position of lower status, intentionally. And think of myself that way in my mental attitude, because this is who I am. And if that's who I am, then I will finally understand how to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And I will know the secret to entering the kingdom of heaven. So, friends, if you're a guest or visitor here, I'm glad you're here. If you don't know what it means to follow Jesus, our Bible passage here is a great explanation for how to enter into a relationship with God. How to become a Christian, if you were to use that language. Every Christian who's here, if they're truly a real Christian, as far as the way the Bible defines it, their greatness has nothing to do with their smarts. It has nothing to do with their good looks. It has nothing to do with their educational background or pedigree, what family they came from, how much money's in their bank account, what kind of clothes they wear, and on and on we could go. Those achievements in the eyes of God mean nothing in terms of God's understanding of greatness. So if any of us are trying to talk to people who are trying to understand Christianity, it's very, very important that we first understand that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must understand our lowly position. It's not that we have to muster up like, well, let me think of myself more lowly than I really am. No, you really are in a lowly position. Compared to God, you are like a drop in the bucket. You are like the grass that fades. You're like a flower that comes and goes. Compared to the eternal God, we are just a mist and a vapor. We're, we're nothing compared to God. So it's not a matter of trying to muster up feelings of lowliness. It's understanding the reality that this is who you are. And until you turn from seeing yourself as pretty good and awesome, and like, yeah, I think pretty highly of myself, until you start to understand your lowly nature, you will never enter the kingdom. It is the first step into the door of the kingdom. And all who are here, as they're hearing this, should be like, yeah, that sounds about right. The first step of my entrance into the kingdom is to acknowledge my sinfulness, is to understand my lowliness, to see God for who he is and see myself for who I truly am. And this is how we understand greatness. Greatness being defined as God looking at the lowly things of the world and not despising them like the rest of the world does, but prizing them. And so the good news of Christianity is that the bad news is far worse than what you have ever thought of. The good news of Christianity is that the bad news is far worse. Whatever position you think that you're in as you enter into this world and as you walk around on this earth, it's actually worse than whatever you're thinking of. Some of you might actually, and I mean this in a very delicate manner, you might be depressed, struggling with lowly thoughts of yourself. The good news of the gospel is that you've probably not plummeted the true depths of the depravity of our own heart and the brokenness and the sickness of our world. And in fact, depression is oftentimes because we're so self-absorbed and consumed with ourselves that we're hardly having the ability to see anything outside of ourselves. And it creates this cycle. But I said this is good news. 
And many of you are giving me these looks like, I don't think that sounds like good news. Because God esteems the lowest of low, this means that the good news of the gospel, of Jesus' entrance into the kingdom from him first, and then all who come after, all of us who cling to Christ and see how much God esteems the lowly, this means that you are far more loved and treasured and valued than you could ever imagine. This is why I said last week that the cure for depression, the cure for low self-esteem, is not to make high thoughts of yourself. It's to look at God and see what God says about you because it will be far more realistic, more honest, and far greater than any counseling, psychology of, well, you just need to think positive thoughts about all the good attributes you have in your life. Greatness in the kingdom is when we understand our true lowliness and realize that God loves lowly things, little children, childlike status, dependence. To be a Christian is to depend on God for everything. The breath that you breathe the sin that you need saved from. You cannot earn it. You can't pay for it. You need to depend fully upon the work and the saving message of the gospel of Jesus. Do you feel childlike? That's the question each of us should be asking ourselves, whether we're a new Christian, exploring Christianity, or we've been a Christian for 50 years. Do you look at yourself like a child? I want you to think not just as you as an individual. I want us to also think, because of the nature of chapter 18 in Matthew, at us corporately. We are not just obsessed with the question about great individuals. America is very obsessed with the question of what makes a great church? Is it the big churches with lots of people? Is it the pastor who gets lots of book deals and travels around the world in his jet airplanes, either the extreme of that or somewhere in between? How do we define greatness for what does a great community of Christians look like? And how many people feel like, well, we're not that big. We don't have that many people. We don't have this or that. Maybe we need more money, a bigger budget. That's what a great church would be like. How about Greatness being redefined by lowly, making much of God, making little of ourselves, forgetting ourselves. Probably the greatest preachers are going to be those that you don't ever remember, not the ones that are so eloquent. that You're like, wow, he can preach. Greatest preachers are going to be those that help you see Jesus that you can only remember Jesus. So a church is great by how much they become less and he increases. Our first ever gathering as a church was six years ago, and it was in a living room, and I said one of the mottos of our church needs to be that we lift him up, and as we lift him up, God will draw people to himself because this is what true greatness should look like. So friends, how well are we collectively and individually defining what greatness looks like. Well, you will know, not by just mentally agreeing or disagreeing with this point in the Bible, you will know by looking at your life and seeing how your life is displayed and lived out. 
Is your life a life filled with greatness? Let's look at greatness displayed. There's a transition right here in verse 5, and it goes to the end of the section, and it continues a theme throughout the rest of Matthew 18. And so I want to point that out to you, but let's read it one more time. Notice the transition from him defining greatness to then talking about what it looks like to be great. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let's pause there and let's notice the transition of what it looks like to be great and humble ourselves in a lowly state. It is to receive a child And when you receive a lowly thing, a despised thing in the world's eyes, you're receiving Jesus himself. Do you see that in verse 5? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. If greatness is to be defined by the way God esteems lowly things, then the way you and I esteem lowly things will display the greatness of our lives and our attitudes. To put it more specifically, the way you and I, let's take the example in this text, the way you and I treat children, the way you receive them, will determine what your spiritual condition is like. How do you think about children, whether in the church or in your life? Are they annoying Do they just get in the way? Do we need to do more kids' ministry stuff so that way we can just get them out there so we can do serious adult stuff? Do you talk to children? Do you listen to them? I'll say that I have four children. I have little ones. Sometimes it's hard to like put aside my agenda and engage with them to play at their level and just be there for them. Not on my phone, not doing something else and trying to multitask, but just say, I want to be here in your presence right now. I'm very much guilty of that. This is my own children. How about other people's children? We love them probably far less. Do you receive children? These are not just symbols of something else, although I do think that this text makes it clear as we keep reading that he's talking beyond just children, but he's talking about children too. And therefore, we should not miss that point. We should receive children. We should think about the church as a collection of singles, marrieds, widows, orphans. We should be thinking about the church as children, Male, female, we should be thinking about the church not just as those 18 and older. The church is comprised of children. Jesus receives them. We should receive children. Certainly, there are multiple ways we could be thinking about this practically. We could be thinking about our own children's ministry. It always has needs. It's one of the last things for people to volunteer and say, Oh, oh, I want to sign up. I want to be with the children. Why is that? Is it because of our spiritual condition? Is it because of many other factors? I'm sure life is messy. There's various reasons why some of you can and cannot serve. But all of us should be asking, 
Am I willing to receive children? Let's make the connection to the broader category now. If you keep reading in the text, look at verse 5. It says, whoever causes or receives one child in my name receives me. But then notice the switch in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The phrase is little ones. Drop down to verse 10, and you're going to notice in the next little section, he's going to say, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And when you read the whole section, it's going to be very obvious, as you read it in its context, little ones are those, in verse 6, who believe in Jesus, who have put their faith and trust in him as being, you're my God, you're the one that I'm setting my gaze on to follow your example, to receive your gift of salvation. I'm believing in Jesus. Anybody who is in that category of believing in Jesus, whether they're young or they're old, child or adult, they are little ones. Which is why I said we need to understand that regardless of where you're at in life, your understanding of yourself should be childlike. I am a little one in God's eyes. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, so now he's taking the specific point of a little child and then he's broadening this point and saying, all believers in Christ know themselves to be lowly. They know themselves to be struggling sinners, hungry, starving, in need of some bread, and they're hungry and they know that only Christ can feed them. That's the little ones. So if you cause someone to stumble, that's the word used here, not sin. It's the word scandalon. It's to trip over something, to be a hindrance or a block. A hindrance to what? A hindrance to believing in Jesus. If you are a hindrance to a little one in believing in Jesus, so somebody is here and they believe in Jesus, and you do something with your life, the way that you're living your life, that is making someone doubt or question Jesus. This is woeful. This is talked about in the most severe language. Therefore, we must understand the importance of our lives and the way that they matter as Christians, both individually and corporately as a church. Sam prayed earlier in the service, make Embassy Church a beacon. Now, that could be if we say, oh, we're going to be a great church because we're going to get a lot of people in a room and we're going to have great music and lights and a show and we're going to do big church stuff and we're going to be great. Or we could be a great beacon by having a community of people who love Christ genuinely from their hearts and love his people and want to do anything they possibly can to make sure they do not cause Christ's followers and believers to stumble in their faith. The number of sad stories we've heard in recent days and months of especially church leaders who have made sinful decisions in their personal lives and seeing the way that the effect of that has caused and led people to say, I'm just giving up on church altogether. Just why even go to church? I can't trust any of the pastors or elders. They're all committing adultery or stealing money from the church or doing all kinds of crazy behaviors. It's like, that's what a pastor is? 
That's a great example of what Jesus is talking about. Woe to the person who is causing or leading somebody to stumble in their faith in Jesus because of the way that they're displaying their life. It would be better for that person to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A quick drowning would be better. Like how many things can you think of in your life where like, all right, so I could have this or I could be drowned to death real quickly. Jesus is saying, causing little ones, not so esteeming the church and the people in it and valuing and prizing each and every member and child of God is a horrendous mistake. This is part of why you, as a believer in Christ, should be filled with God-esteem and not thinking lowly of yourself. Look to the extent and the serious care that Jesus wants the other members of the church to value one another and care for each other and make sure with the strongest possible words that you would do everything you possibly can to protect and preserve the faith of each and every little child of God. There's, there's something to be gleaned from the way that Jesus is talking here about the value of each member and the seriousness. If you don't know what a millstone is, I have a picture behind me on the screen. So that's a donkey, right? And then here, I have a pointer. This is the millstone, okay? And then graphically, this is a guy with a millstone around his neck, which is quite interesting, but this was the best picture I could find. Uh, but here's the millstone, and it would, you know, uh, churn up the grain, and it would press it down. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. Take that giant piece of stone tied around someone's neck and have them jump into the ocean and drown very quickly. That would be a better idea than causing a little one to fall away from Jesus. So friends, I hope and pray that your vision of the church, your valuing of the church is not just a Sunday event. Well, I value going to church on Sunday because there's an event that I go to. Valuing and prizing the church and making it a priority and a commitment is to value and prize the people in the church and to commit ourselves to a corporate commitment of holiness. We want to do everything we can to not cause people to stumble in their faith. Now, Jesus is a realist to some degree. Look at what he says in the next section, verses 7 to following. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary, and I think a better way to say the word necessary is, it is inevitable that temptations are going to come. We live in a fallen world. Jesus is a realist. There's going to be problems. Is there a perfect church that never causes people to stumble in their faith or sin? It doesn't exist. It is not Embassy Church. If you're a guest or visitor and you're looking for that perfect church, keep looking. You have not found it. We've been here for six years, and we have sinners that need Jesus and we need more saving. So Jesus acknowledges this. But then look how he continues. Again, severe language. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye 
than with two eyes to be thrown into the eternal fire. If this sounds familiar, it's because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if a man commits uh, adultery, that's wrong. But you know what else is wrong? Lusting in your heart. And it would be better for you to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand than to have a life of looking at women, at least in that context of Matthew 5, he's talking about men lusting after women, uh, but looking after somebody who's not your spouse and having thoughts of thinking, well, you're basically for my personal pleasure, and you're not really a human being made in the image of God. You're just going to be whatever I want you to be, and that's what lust is at the core. It is dehumanizing. It is looking little at the image bearers of God and humans around the earth, and that's, that's why lust and adultery and all the things that flow from it are so serious, and so that's the same language of cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. And of course, Jesus knows that if you gouge out your eye, uh, that means you still have one eye left and you could still lust. So cutting out your eye and cutting off your hand doesn't keep you from lusting or committing adultery. I mean, there's other things you could do to try and cut off body parts and not have adultery. But he's not talking about cutting off body parts in order to make sure that you don't commit adultery. He's talking about the severity and the seriousness of sin. And my friends, we need to make sure that we hear this language and not just quickly pass by it. There's also another thing we need to make sure we do, and it's to rightly understand what he's talking about, especially at the end there. Did you notice he says, to be thrown into the hell of fire? I think sometimes some people might be led astray or stumble over the faith of trusting in Jesus because of the way we talk about hell. Like, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if we even know what it is. And so, I don't want you little ones to stumble, and it's good to teach God's Word, so let's just make sure we understand what Jesus is referring to here. So, first, the word hell is um, Gehenna. That's what the word hell is. Gehenna. Gehenna is not a Greek word. So, all of Matthew is written in Greek, and it's being translated into English. Gehenna, though, is not a Greek word. It is the Greek spelling of a Hebrew word that comes from the Old Testament. So, this is the background of the word hell. And I've kind of joked around with people from time to time. Like, if we would have actually just said the word Gehenna, it would really change kind of our four-letter vocabulary of curse words and things. Could you just imagine people going around and being like, you know, Gehenna instead of what they normally say? Like, it just sounds different when you realize, like, that's the real word. The, the real word is Gehenna. And hell is being rethought of because of our context and your teaching and whatever kind of cultural baggage you have about what hell is. But hell is Gehenna. So, What's the next question? Well, what's Gehenna? So, Gehenna is the Valley of Hinnom. It's two words put together, Gehenom, and that's the Hebrew word, Valley of Hinnom. It's a place. It's like a real place. It's a place right outside of Jerusalem. So, when Jesus is talking here, he says, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom. So what's the valley of Hinnom? And here is a picture of the valley of Hinnom. 
and that's the real place. You could go visit it today, and you could stand in it and say, hey, I'm in hell, you know. Um, that, that's hell. That's Gehenna. There's a real historical valley just outside the city hills of Jerusalem that slopes down, and I, I didn't go there. I've, I've never been. I'd like to. If somebody wants to give me a trip there, I'll go, but uh, that's hell, and I could bring you pictures, but that's uh, someone I know that took pictures of it, and um, so there you go. That's hell. But there's a further picture that tells us a story, and I want to show you this is Jerusalem right here, and that's the city gates, and uh, this is fire, and then this is a picture of people, and then right here is a baby. Th this is how the people of Israel in the story that you can find I think it's, uh, let me make sure I'm right here. Second Kings, the story of Manasseh. Manasseh was a king of the people of Israel. So think several hundred years before Jesus. Here's the story about hell. Manasseh decided to believe in the worship of a god named Molech, a Canaanite god who was the god of the underworld and death. So he has the power over death. Think of like the Grim Reaper would be like a common modern Molech, okay? So you've got Molech and he's in charge of who dies and the underworld. So this is Canaanite pagan religion. And these Israelites, through the leading of their king, decide, you know, we need to make sure we're on Molech's good side. And in order to keep you from dying the way that Molech is satisfied was from baby blood or child sacrifice. So think about here the, the stark contrast between the treasuring and prizing of little children and the absolute devaluing of babies and children in the front and half of our text. So what happens is uh, God's people start sacrificing children again and again. Uh, I think one of the, the worst things in the world in terms of human sin is when adults abuse little children. Um, I think sex trafficking, uh, especially of young children, is, is by far one of the things that just gets the blood boiling quicker and easier than almost anything. This takes that kind of to another level, doesn't it? Just throwing babies into an altar of sacrifice. We just went through Leviticus. And so instead of the burnt offering animal, it's like their own daughters and sons are being placed on the altar and they're watching their flesh burn. So as you would imagine, if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he prizes lowly things, true religion is taking care of widows and orphans and weak and vulnerable things, then you would imagine God's not pleased with this. And sure enough, in the book of Jeremiah, you can read that Jeremiah calls them out for this sin. And essentially, this is the summary of what Jeremiah says. He says, you lit the fire against the weak and vulnerable and innocent. So because of this, God will allow the army of Babylon to destroy you, Israelites, and throw your bodies into the valley of Hinnom. Justice for what they did to these little children is for you started a fire and you're going to be thrown into the fire. That's what Jeremiah says. 
God is not looking down at God's people and saying, oh, well, that's okay. He is just and righteous, and he hates and abhors sin, especially sin like this. But remember, this is a God giving people over to their evil acts of worship and to suffer the consequences of their own sin. And those babies who burn in that valley and started the fire, God would say, I am going to have the Babylonians come and throw you into that fire. So then that's a better picture of hell. The valley where the children were burned is the valley called Gehenna. So every time you read the word hell in the English translations, you need to have that entire backdrop. This is why it's talked about fire. That's where the whole imagery of fire comes from. Is This is one of the most dark and disturbing seasons and episodes in the history of not just the people of Israel, but maybe even humanity. And so a lot of times people think, well, hell is down there. No, hell is outside of the city. Hell is outside of where the presence of God is. Hell is the place where the most disturbing and most destructive thing ever happened. And God took that sin and said, you will get the consequences. You will get the righteous, just punishment for what you did. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're going to burn babies in a fire. I'm going to burn you in that fire. So there's these two last slides I want to show you. And it's that this is a picture of what most of us think about with heaven and hell. When we think about the earth and the mission of God, we think a lot of times that there's the earth and that we are going to die and we're either going to go up to heaven or we're going to go down to hell. And that's already the, the wrong idea. Hell is not down there somewhere under the earth. Hell is outside of the city. That, that's how you should be thinking about it geographically. Outside of the presence of God, not in the city walls and gates where the temple is. So this picture is quite deficient. The story of the Bible is not for us to escape the earth. The earth is good. The story of the Bible is God coming to the earth to redeem it and restore it. So this picture is a picture of here's what heaven and earth, and earth is, it is burned up with hell. Hell is a present reality now. Hell is brought onto the earth by our sin and causing others to stumble. And so heaven comes down to earth and it gets hell out. And so the other thing I like to say, and I told this to the middle schoolers, that when we got together a couple months ago, I want you to go home and I want you to tell your parents that what we learned in our class is that the story of the Bible and the mission of God is to get hell out of here. Like that's the story. The story is to get hell out of our hearts and of the earth and the world. That's the story of the Bible. Not that we get out of here, but that we would get hell out. And that's accomplished by the greatest person who defined and displayed greatness better than anyone else, Jesus. We've seen how greatness is Defined, and we've seen how greatness is displayed. But how is greatness both defined and displayed in the person of Jesus? Well, Jesus became an infant baby. He took on the lowliest state after hiving the highest of a state. You should think of Philippians chapter 2, that when he did not account equality with God something to be grasped, he humbled himself, and he took on the form of a human And in fact, he took on the form of a baby. And 
thinking of the animated picture that I showed you earlier, I, I couldn't kind of get out of my head. Jesus then becomes the baby thrown into the hellfire as he comes into the earth to quench fire's flames. And he burns on the cross as he dies for our sin so that there can be the power unleashed through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' resurrection and ascension, so that you and I can get hell out of here, so that we don't cause little ones to sin and stumble anymore. It's through the gospel power of beholding the greatness of Jesus that you will find a new affection and love for God and his church. Ultimately, to avoid offending and stumbling and causing others to sin is to become childlike. Or in other words, you could say it's to become Christ-like. Jesus is the most childlike of all, the eternal child of the Father, giving himself to death rather than offending the least little one who would believe in him. And so we must look to Jesus as greatness defined. What is greatness? Look no further than Christ on the cross making himself low. What is greatness displayed look like? All who cling to Christ and find their pattern of taking the position of a servant and not trying to make themselves great by the world's standards. So friends, church members, may we be great. Great in this way, defined by God's value of greatness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word, and we want to thank you for Jesus. We want to pray and ask that you would humble us and help us to understand who we really are in Christ. I pray, God, that as we see the terror of the great darkness of our own sin and the hell that's on earth, the hell that continues for all of eternity, that you would turn us Make us born again and new creatures with a new creation. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might be great, even if the rest of the world thinks that that means we're very little and lowly. May we not care what the world thinks. May we have a new definition of greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.